and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. We have been keeping a close eye on inflation. We know that we have watched prices go up over and over on the necessities, especially when it comes to groceries. And if you've been watching gone to the grocery store lately, you know that egg prices have gone through the roof. When we have questions about things like this, we go to the experts. And from, from Hickman Family Farms, joining us right now is Glenn Hickman, President and CEO. Mr. Hickman, thanks for being here. Good morning, Mike. Uh, let's talk about egg prices. What is contributing to the the huge uh, increase in prices for eggs for everyone? Uh, well, Mike, you know, there is a lot of uh, news prior to Thanksgiving about the uh, increased price of turkeys because avian influenza has, has hit the poultry industry, turkeys, broilers, and egg layers, you know, with uh, a degree we have never seen before. And... You know, the, the shortage of turkeys and the combination of Thanksgiving made the turkey price extremely high. We've had layer farms that have continued to be infected and, and when they're infected, they have to get depopulated. And so it's contributed to a shortage of eggs. At the same time, the holiday de- demand for Thanksgiving and especially Christmas baking was at its highest. So between the reduction in supply and the increase of de- in demand, there was uh, there's been spot shortages and elevated pricing. Right now, today, since the since the holidays, um, our the the national egg market has basically been limit down every day. So, eggs are becoming more available, and as the demand has slacked, and the pricing is reflecting that reduced. Uh, demand as well. Is it true that when one bird is infected anywhere that all of them have to be euthanized? Unfortunately, yes, Mike. This, and, and it's um, you what happens is that the one bird gets infected and it spreads pretty fast. So it's, it's not like you can just ignore the, uh, the one bird. Cause maybe you've got a oh, hundred birds today that become infected and die, um, depending on the size of the flock and such, you know, that, that can exponentially grow to a thousand the next day and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it, it's an abundance of caution and, uh, it's done in order to reduce the viral load in that area and so the government mandates that if you have one sick chicken the entire farm has to be depopulated how often are you tested or do you test you're not required to test uh mike you you know we all farmers whether you're managing cattle or managing chickens you keep an eye on your on your herd or your flock and so when you start to notice uh aberrations in their behavior or their production and those kind of things you start to investigate so um when you start to when you start to see an elevation in, in mortality you immediately start to investigate and and then you you can send off samples and determine why they're uh why they're that elevation mortality spiked and and that's how you catch it has the bird flu has it infected in in arizona is it here well, yes. Uh, you know, there's uh, right before Thanksgiving. You know, the the pelicans at the uh, Phoenix Zoo all died, and there was some uh, cormorants at a uh, at a park, I think, in Scottsdale that died. So the presumption is it's in the environment, it's in the wild bird population, and we have to take uh, extreme precautions to prevent them from getting inside our barns. So, what do you do? What precautions do you take? 
Well, first of all, Mike, you know, we've always prided ourselves on being fairly transparent about how we take care of our of our chickens and how we produce food. But right now, today, uh, short of a court order, any visitor that is not, that we deem as non-critical would not get into our barns. Those workers that take care of the of the facilities and, and take care of the flocks, they we have we have these uh, created these bio rooms where they almost like a a semiconductor chip plant. They have to go in, shower, put on clean company clothes, and then and then work for the day, and then that process is repeated when they exit the farm. How many um, how many eggs per day do you produce here in the state of Arizona? Well, Mike, we have about six million hens in the state of Arizona, and we, you know, they at peak production they're close to an egg a day. But you know, we probably have the six million chickens. We probably get five million eggs a day. And is that uh, how is that related to demand? Are you guys keeping up with demand now? No, Mike, we we really aren't. The um, as other uh, farms have have become you know, infected and, and haven't been able to ship their customers in in full. Um, you know, people, uh, consumers have, have kind of waterfalled to the, the next grocery store and so on and so forth. So we are not being able to keep, uh, you know, shipping in full, but we, we are shipping in excess of what we shipped this time last year. So we've been able to move some schedules around and, and do some things differently and, and are, are maximizing our production. Is there an expectation that we will get back to normal sometime soon, or what is the timeline do you figure before prices get back down to where they were before? You know, Mike, normal is uh, probably everyone has a different definition, but with the uh, escalation of grain prices somewhat brought on by the Ukraine war and some of the other uh, inflationary effects of producing eggs the the days of seeing eggs uh on sale you know for two dozen for a dollar are probably gone forever so i don't i don't i don't know what what normal might be in in each individual's eyes but will prices come back down to uh, you know maybe historical ranges probably but they're probably going to end up at the top of those of that historical range that they've traded in for the last you know five years well, I appreciate the time and the insight because I know a lot of people are just, uh, you know, it's almost like sticker shock when you go to the grocery store. So at least there's an explanation and hopefully we're going to see dropping in prices. And uh, I appreciate you coming on and explaining it to us. Mike, thank you for the opportunity. You know, in, in the U.S., we've always had fairly cheap uh, food prices, and sometimes that doesn't reflect our actual costs. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that have had gone up in, in price to reflect the added cost of doing business. Well, I appreciate the time. Sure, Mike. Thanks for calling. All right, thanks. That is uh, Glenn Hickman. He is uh, with uh, Hickman's Family Farms out in the West Valley. They've been here for generations, and I've talked quite a bit about them. I'm friends with uh, Clint Hickman, who was on the County Board of Supervisors, and uh, just a wealth of information and insight. If you if you didn't know much about them, how much they provide around the state of Arizona and the southwestern United States and beyond that as well. And so prices are up high. He said they're probably going to come down, but he doesn't know how much. Um, but a little insight into what caused that huge increase in prices for so many. 
many people because it affects so much of what we do. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, um, we cook with them. Almost everything we cook with. If you're in the restaurant business, imagine what is how it's affecting people in the restaurant business as the uh, food prices have gone up across the board. This is one of those spikes that's been hurting a lot of people, and hopefully they're going to come down soon. And uh, it was just good to get some insight. What we're going to do coming up in a moment, we're going to talk about Kevin McCarthy. We haven't talked about that yet this morning. We have a speaker of the house. How did we get there? We're going to talk about that, the deals that were made, and what we can expect for the next Congress. All that's coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. If you think you have the oldest AC in the Valley, you could win a brand new high-efficiency air conditioner and an air purifier courtesy of Day and Night Air Conditioning. Text the word DAY to 411-923. That's DAY to 411-923. And enter now. Message and data rates may apply. So we talk about the speaker race. I want you to hear uh, Representative McCarthy was finally, after 15 rounds of voting, was finally elected Speaker of the House. And this is what he had to say about setting the tone for the next Congress. We will hold the swamp accountable. From the withdrawal of Afghanistan, to the origins of COVID, and to the weaponization of the FBI. So there are going to be investigations and oversight, so we know that that's coming. And so how does he plan on doing this with the president? Let me be very clear. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena to get the job done. So we are going to see if these investigations are fruitful in any way. Is this something that's going to further divide the country? Is it something that is going to move the country forward? I will tell you there are a few things that everyone should be concerned about, and one of them would be, was the FBI weaponized in any way? Were they used to persuade, as we've seen with Twitter and other places, they were trying to push down stories? Were they being used by the administration to push down news stories? If that's the case, everyone should be um, very concerned about that. I will say, and think about it. And the other way around, think about if President Trump were, would have used the FBI to try to get Twitter and Facebook or other social media platforms to push down stories. We all would be concerned and say that that's not what a free press does. A free press is free from government intrusion and government influence. That's the whole idea of the freedom of speech, the protections under the First Amendment that the media gets, that journalism gets. The reason why there are so many people that don't trust journalism right now is expressed because of things like this. And so is there a need to investigate this? I would say there should be, but it needs to be something that's done in a bipartisan fashion in this way. I think both sides of the aisle should look at what's happening, expose it, and call it what it is, one way or the other. Because if we continue to have one-sided investigations, we're only going to get one side of the story. Whether they're right or wrong, half the country's not going to believe it just because of who's giving out, uh, who, is, uh, who is out there uh, giving out the information. Um, a couple of comments that were made about the speaker, the concessions he had to make. This is Rachel Scott from uh, ABC. The biggest concession that McCarthy had to make in order to get the votes he needed. Probably one of the most important concessions that he made is what we call a motion to vacate. This essentially makes it easier to remove the Speaker of the House. Now, McCarthy originally agreed to not only being five lawmakers to be able to raise that motion, try to force a vote to remove the Speaker of the House. Well, he dropped that down. down 
down to one. So as of now, going forward, as of what was uh, figured out of this deal, a single lawmaker can try to force a vote to remove the Speaker of the House. So will that happen? Will we see this happen from the opposite side of the aisle? Not just Republicans that may not trust McCarthy, but if some of these things are going in a direction that the Democrats don't like, are we going to see the whole system shut down or at least stalled with these kinds of votes? So another ABC uh, uh, report, this is uh, Mary Alice Parks uh, talking about the vote and should the Biden administration be concerned? And the White House is clearly worried. They have to assume, given what we've seen in the last few days, that Republicans are really going to struggle to even get the most basic bills passed to pass a budget, to pass a government spending bill, to raise the debt limit, to pay for the country's bills. So we've watched uh, what's interesting about this is I want to see how this is um, how this plays out in the court of public opinion. If we've watched over the years, we watched for the four years of the Trump administration, investigation after investigation, two major committees in the House of Representatives directed by Nancy Pelosi and then the investigations headed up by Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and the Intelligence and the Judiciary Committees as they did four years of investigation into the former president. We know about the Mueller report. All of those things continued on and on and there were people that thought it was necessary because of the accusations and the things that might be out there with Russian collusion and everything else that absolutely turned up nothing. So now we're going to see something from the other side of this, whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, the FBI's influence in Facebook and Twitter. But how much of this is going to move the country forward is how much of this is necessary, how much of this is going to be catering to the people that the that Kevin McCarthy had to Representative McCarthy had to um, had to, I guess, uh, cave to in order to move forward. In the end, Congress remains very unpopular. If you look at the at, at the approval rating of Congress, it remains very, very low. Are they going to get something done for the American people? Now, what's going to be difficult is you've got a president and a, con- and a House of Representatives that disagree greatly. Same with the House and the Senate. You know that when bills originate in the House, they have to get over to the Senate or vice versa. You've got to get matching bills voted on. Are we going to see anything done? Are we going to have at least two years of absolute gridlock? Is that worth worthwhile for people. How do we get a budget done? What will we do to continue to fund the things that are necessary here in America? Spending for border protection and for uh, defense spending, all of the things that are necessary for the American government to continue moving forward. How do the how do they work together? I think this is going to be a fascinating look at what's going to happen. And uh, are we going to see are we going to see um the people uh, uh, of this country be frustrated by what's not. So I want you to hear uh, just a little bit uh, Representative McCarthy talking about Biden. Our system is built on checks and balances. It's time for us to be a check and provide some balance to the president's policies. So that sounds a lot like gridlock, doesn't it? I mean, that's where, you know, where you are saying and this is where now the president is going to have to negotiate. Now, this is the way if you look at it, this is the way our government is supposed to work with Democrats and Republicans, where there are checks and balances. It's one of the reason why I was glad that the filibuster wasn't ended in the Senate, because it is just a one vote majority in the House of Representatives. But in the Senate, in many cases, you have to get 60 votes, which means you don't see these big swings in ideological laws that are passed. And then another Congress comes in and swings 
things in another direction. It, it, it calls for some balance just by virtue of the rules. Um, so, you know, it, it's just an interesting take. What we're going to do in a moment is uh, after all the Cardinals games this season, we've had Ron Wolfley in with us from Arizona Sports. He's the voice of the Arizona Cardinals, also the host of the Wolf and Luke show over on Arizona Sports. We're going to have him in one more time. Sum up the Cardinals season. Look at the Cardinals moving forward. All that's coming up here in just a couple of moments. Broomhead talks Cardinals with color analyst and former Cards fullback Ron Wolfley. Oh, my digging the chili of what the Cardinals are mixing up. Bird's Eye View, brought to you by AZ Valley Windows, Arizona's most trusted window replacement company since 2004. All right, in studio with me, Ron Wolfley. Uh, Ron, welcome back. How you doing, bro? Uh, I'm all right. Um, we, not just the last game, but the season overall with the Cardinals. Big disappointment. Huge disappointment, no doubt about it. Um, coming into this season, of course, um, even with without DeAndre Hopkins on his six-game suspension, I really did believe offensively the Arizona Cardinals were going to be a great football team, and that never materialized this year. And that um, that truth has derailed the season for the most part. Yeah, and you've uh, you know there are so many questions that are swirling around from the general manager and whether or not he's going to return to Cliff Kingsbury. The watch is on. Is he going to be fired? What what plays? into that what goes into that it's not just the record yeah, no, it really is not. You know, um, I think people asking the question, is Cliff Kingsbury going to be fired today or not? Um, I think you're asking the wrong question because the question that needs to be asked is whether or not you think Cliff Kingsbury can reach Kyler Murray. That's what this question comes down to. You're talking about $230 million. This is your franchise quarterback. This is the first season that Kyler Murray actually took a step back. That's got to be the question. The answer to that question, I think, will determine where the Arizona Cardinals might go with Cliff Kingsbury. If the answer is yes, you know what? He can take Kyler Murray to that next level. You're not going to fire him. If the answer is no, you don't think that he can take Kyler Murray to that next level of quarterback play, then you're going to fire him. That's what you're going to do. So to me, it's a situation where who knows that best? Michael Bidwell and the people in the front office. And you know that um, that injury affects just about everybody, but especially a mobile quarterback. It's not just physically what it's going to do to Kyler Murray, but what does it do to him mentally when he comes back? Yeah, that's a great question because, once again, overcoming a serious injury like that and an ACL is a serious injury. It's not the same injury that it used to be back when I played in 1985. It was really a career-threatening injury at that point in time. It's not like that anymore in the National Football League, but anytime you suffer a serious injury, um the mental part of it is very, very difficult. You've got to overcome the feeling that, hey, listen, I'm back. Physically, I'm back. The doctors say I'm okay to go. Um, you're out there practicing for the first time in pads, whatever it may be like. It takes a long time before you feel like yourself. You you have to have confidence in the fact that you're going to plant that knee and you're going to push off that knee and it's not going to fly out your armpit. You have to be confident that that's going to happen. It's a mental game as much as it is a physical recovery. Especially since mobility is such a big part of Kyler Murray's game. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And especially because he didn't get hit. 
It was a non-contact ACL, and we see this all the time in the National Football League today. But, yeah, you know what? Honestly, I think it's going to be a mental thing with Kyler. He's got to get on top of it and get over it. One of the things that I talked about was leadership on this team. How much of a loss is the leadership of J.J. Watt in that locker room going to be? Oh, man, I got to tell you, it's going to be huge. Um, The Arizona Cardinals are going to miss J.J. Watt in a big, big way. What an incredible game by J.J. Watt. Can I just say that? Watching it, I kind of geeked out. Here's a guy, he's going to be a a first ballot Hall of Famer, um, three-time Defensive Player of the Year um, winner. This is a guy that uh, his achievements on the field are legendary, and yet... That may actually be overshadowed by his, his achievements as a leader off the field, the intangibles that he brings. He is a culture unto himself, and we talk so much about culture and professional sports, and, and certainly in the National Football League, how important it is to have that culture that says, this is who we are, and this is how we do things around here. J.J. Watt has his own culture. It's awesome to watch this guy. This is who he is, and and this is how he does things around here. It starts with an individual, and then hopefully you get it to a second guy, and then a third, and a fourth, and before you know it, it takes over your team. That's what culture is, and it is the baseline to any professional sport you're going to play in. Yeah, and in introducing that kind of work ethic and the kind of human being that he was to those young players on that defense is something, hopefully those guys are going to carry with him for all the rest of their career. No, I, I I know that there were guys that impacted my career. Um, you learn so much more from players, other players, than you do any other coach. You learn from players so much of the time. That's where you make your biggest strides. And J.J. Watt is one of these guys where he doesn't try to hide his knowledge. He tries to grab some young guys and actually help them out. I know he was really, really close with Zayvon Collins, as a matter of fact. Hard Knox, the latest Hard Knocks episode, had that friendship between Zayvon Collins, a second-year guy in the league who's developing, and J.J. Watt, a guy who's been in the league for 12 years. The way he's mentoring him, it's just very cool to see. Can you put into context, because you played with and around some of the greatest players in the game in your generation, can you put into context what his career was? Because he is just legendary. You mean J.J. Watt? Yeah, J.J. When you say three-time defensive player of the year right there, 12 years for the most part, right? 25% of the time, he's he's been the defensive player of the year and um, just a great football player through and through. Never won a Super Bowl ring, yet at the same time it's very difficult to say he's not the greatest defensive end uh, to play in the National Football League in a long time. When you consider his ability to defend against the run and the pass, he's just lights out legend before i let you go uh one tell me what your thoughts were when you saw the injury to demar hamlin when you saw how severe that was in the and in, in the aftermath what were your thoughts yeah i i have to tell you uh, that was so difficult to watch that you don't think of cpr in between the white lines you don't 
I, I can tell you right now, Brew, there were many, many times I took the field and didn't know if I was going to leave the field in one piece. There were many, many, every player thinks of that. Your well-being going in to a football game. It's one of the reasons why you, you play the game. It's it's one of the, the reasons why I loved playing the game of football was because of that juice. You never knew if you were going to be in one piece coming off that field. And I loved it. Football is a dangerous game, and it's played by dangerous people, people that actually like that and go out and lay it on the line and know the risks that are, but you never think to yourself, this is going to be a life or death situation, like so much of our first responders who go out, so many people in our military who go out and really know, I may not come back alive, not in one piece. I may not come back alive. And to see DeMar Hamlin receive CPR for nine minutes on the field, it was shocking. You could see it on the Buffalo Bills' faces. You could see it on the Bengals' players. And when they came out onto the field and started started consoling the Bills players, that to me told me this game is over. When they yeah. started to do it, and, I, and nobody called it, nobody was calling it, but when you go out there and suddenly this is about another person's life, you just don't ever walk in between those white lines thinking that way. And uh, although it has happened in rare, extremely rare, rare instances in the past, um... I've never seen anything like it. Never. And it was shocking. Especially when you've got young men that are in the prime of their physical lives, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, you know. And I I, I just, to hear you say that, I cannot tell you that's exactly how I felt. Exactly. As a player, you walked out there, you know, especially even though I got killed on a regular basis on the field. I didn't care. I was going to get off the ground, and that's what I was, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, metaphorically speaking. And, man, um, to, to see this stud, this kid, Damar, who's doing so well right now in answer to prayer, and um, I just everybody, of course, rooting uh, for him and praying for this young man and his career and his life and where it goes from this point forward. Nobody knows, but Damar Hamlin, um, what a what a great stud hero yeah. this guy has become to so many people. Wolf, it's always good to talk with you. I'm going to miss talking to you now that the season's over. We got to find an excuse to get you back <laughs> in the right. studio. I'll do it, bro. All right, man. Thanks. Okay, man. That's Ron Wolf. Uh, from Arizona Sports, uh, so synopsis of the of the Cardinals season. Uh, coming up in a moment, we are going to talk about homelessness. Arizona has some of the worst homeless problem in the entire nation. We'll talk about that coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app.
Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. I uh, saw this story. Arizona has one of the worst homelessness crises in the nation, according to federal data. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in December released its 2022 point-in-time estimates of homelessness. Uh, homelessness across the country increased by less than 1%, yet Arizona saw a 23% jump in homeless population. Um, there are a few things, I think, that contribute to this. Number one, I think the cost of housing is, is displaced people, for sure. But also, I think a lot has to do with our climate. And what I mean by that is if you look at the migration and people that deal with homelessness, in the summertime, the homelessness population grows in northern Arizona, Flagstaff, Prescott, in that area because people are leaving the intense heat to go somewhere where the climate is a little better. And in the winter months, people come to Arizona because our winters are more mild than other parts of the country or in northern Arizona. So there is an element of that in there. But dealing with homelessness is not something that is uh, – it's a very complex problem. Um, and there are great organizations that deal with it. I, the, the Biden administration is talking about billions of dollars in investment for uh, – to, to address the homeless problem. Um, but we have to be able to look at a couple of different – I think anyway. I think we should be looking at a couple of different places to try to solve the problem of homelessness. There are some people that are on the streets due to mental illness. We know that that's self-medicated mental illness, we know that that's a problem. But we also know that there are other people on the streets due to addiction and bad decisions. There are some people that through no fault of their own or through some big mistakes ended up on the streets and they're in a, in a cycle of homelessness. And so there are organizations that try to address the issue. And I think whenever we have the opportunity to give, we should. Um, providing a meal, I think, is a great thing to do, is which we've done on many occasions with the Action Alliance that we put together. Um, we've gone out to address hunger. Uh, especially when it comes to the homeless population. One of the things we did most recently is we went to one of the dining halls for St. Vincent de Paul. And I will say that um, even though people knew what they were going and what they were in for, when you begin to see hundreds of people come through the door, when it seems like almost an unending line of people just waiting for a meal, a hot meal, uh, I think it strikes you because we live in a place that's fairly affluent and people live in nice homes and warm homes and and to see people on the street that are just waiting for a hot meal and that many of them and this was just a kind of a blip on the radar of how many homeless people there are in the valley it's eye-opening it's staggering but giving someone a meal doesn't solve the problem it what it does is it it, it is something that's necessary i'm not discounting that but how do we address the differences how do we as a society, what is it that we can do to not just get people off the streets, but to get people back into life? There are things that they do for veterans, like the stand down, where um, you know they address some of their legal issues. If you've uh, you know if you lose your driver's license because you can't pay fines and you can't get an ID and you can't get a job, clean clothes, a haircut, a shower to get to a job interview. Um, St. Vincent de Paul has a bike ministry where they give bicycles to people so that they can get to job interviews and get to work. It sounds very simplistic, but it's helping people get back into the mainstream. And so when we see a problem, it's not giving a panhandler a dollar. It's not uh, just providing one meal for someone. But how do we address the real problem of homelessness? Because there are a lot of people out there that would love to get off the streets and get back into society. How can we foster that? And there 
there are some great organizations, and I hope you'll look into some of them. We talk about St. Vincent de Paul quite often um, and the great work that they do, Circle the City addressing. They address medical needs of homeless people, but the organizations that are addressing the problem of homelessness itself could use a lot of help. And uh, there's great ways that you can support them, and I hope that you will. With the huge homeless population in Arizona, I don't think it's going to be shrinking anytime soon. It is something that every one of us can and should be um, concerned with. I, I've told my story often about a cousin who who died homeless in Las Vegas, and uh, so whenever I see a homeless person, I realize there's a story behind it, just like my cousin. When I saw my cousin, I didn't see homelessness. I saw the cousin I grew up with. And there's a story out there for many, many people that can and need our help to get off the streets. What we're going to do just after 10 o'clock is we're going to talk about the border visit by the president. You're going to hear some of the comments from Governor Abbott, who is down there, some of the people explaining what the president was there to see and what he may have learned from that trip and what changes may be coming to the policies of the White House. So we're going to address all of those things coming up just after 10 o'clock.